you could be finding the letter of 1 Timothy in the Bible. If you have a Bible with you, if you don't, then you'll be able to follow on the screen on the wall. But if you do, we're going to be looking again at 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I promise, in this series anyway, this will be the last time we look at 1 Timothy 2. At uh, some point in the new year, we will move on to 1 Timothy 3. After a lot of prayer and consideration, I decided that I wouldn't preach 1 Timothy 3 on Christmas Eve, which is when I'm next speaking. That'll be something else. Um, but today, one more occasion in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which I'm going to read from verse 8 to the end. It says this, I want men everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. If you were here, you will re- if you were here a few weeks or even a month ago, You will remember the last time I was speaking in 1 Timothy chapter 2. uh, We focused, we zoomed right in on chapter 2 verse 12, which perhaps to to our ears may sound like one of the most controversial verses in the New Testament. So we we focused right in on it to zoom in, to, to try to understand what Paul was saying, what he was uh, teaching there. And it would be uh, appealing on one sense to now just move ahead to chapter 3. But we're going to spend a little bit more time in chapter 2, and here's the reason why. If we just stop there, having just zoomed right in on on chapter 2, verse 12, we might miss out on understanding not just what Paul said, but actually why. Why did he say it? And why in general, is a big picture question. I want to see the big picture. Tell me why. Why did Paul teach that? Why was that Paul's um, uh, word of instruction to Timothy in the church in Ephesus? And if we don't consider, if we don't zoom back out again to consider uh, some of the bigger issues or the wider issues in chapter 2, what we could end up doing is this. We could just say, well, thank goodness that now I've understood what Paul meant in verse 12, So if anybody asks me a question about this little quirk of church life, then thank goodness, with a slightly kind of nervous and apologetic stance, I've got something I could say. I mean, I don't understand why, but at least I can say what. And that's why it's important to both zoom in, really focus, but also then to to zoom out. So before we finish looking at chapter 2, we're going to zoom back out just going to remind you that the focus of this whole chapter has been on prayer. Paul has been urging the church to pray. And when it comes to prayer, he's saying, I want you to pray for everyone. It's a really big picture. It's the whole world. It's a massive plan. Come on, church. 
Pray for the world. Pray for everyone. Therefore, pray for everyone who rules or is in some position of authority because if they do their job well, that makes it easier to spread the gospel. And that's what we are all involved in. That's our priority. That's our desire to see the good news of Jesus spread. And it's for everyone. Remember, folks, there's one God and there's one Savior that everyone might be invited into salvation. So we've spent some time focusing on that. And because the focus is on the whole world, and therefore it's on the whole church, you see, when we get to chapter 3, the focus is going to be elders and deacons. The focus is on leadership. But the focus in chapter 2 is on everyone in the world and everyone in the church. And therefore, the focus is on both men and women. And that's what... uh, as the chapter comes to its kind of second half, that's where, the, uh, that's where the focus takes us. And see if we just came away with verse 12, thinking I can now explain this little quirk of church life, or the church that I go to, where when the church gathers publicly, it's just a few men who might stand up to teach and preach in that setting. I can now explain that. But this, this is bigger than just what happens on a Sunday. And this is bigger than just what happens in the church. And this is bigger than just when a man marries a woman and they have a marriage and a family. It's bigger than marriage. It's bigger than family. It's, it's the whole of creation throughout history. It's about the whole of life in the everyday. Not just explaining a quirk of the spiritual life that doesn't really affect day-to-day that much. It's this affects everything and it affects every situation and it's to shape how we think and how we live in everyday life in every situation therefore today in looking at the big picture again our focus is what does the bible say and what does the bible affirm about being a man or being a woman about being together men and women and how would the bible shape how we live every day in faith and in grace as part of a church. So it's applicable for those who are married, but it's applicable for those who aren't. This is everyone. And I think that uh, the Bible will help us to affirm three things. Surprise, surprise. And as we go through that, if you like, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is our launch pad into other areas of the Scripture. And we'll revisit 1 Timothy 2 every now and again to look at uh, some of the things that are in there. Obviously, in future messages, we've looked at it quite a lot, different aspects to do with dress and lifting holy hands in prayer and so on. And even the, the point about women not teaching or having authority over a man. So, let's get into the big picture. Firstly, and this is first, then this is the foundation. What the Bible affirms and what we are to Rejoice in and celebrate is we are equal. No question. And we see this in so many places. I'm going to touch on a few. For the benefit of note takers, I will try and go slowly. But we're not necessarily going to turn to absolutely every uh, reference. But we will turn to uh, creation. We will turn to Genesis, I think that's what Paul was doing himself in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He turns back to Adam and Eve. Let's do that briefly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them 
rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And what we see in Genesis is on other days of the week of creation, God stands back at the end of a hard day's work, or an easy day's work, and says, it was good. But having created man and woman, he takes a step back and says, now, this is very good. I haven't finished my creating yet. I'm going to create something that's in my image. Uh, And so men and women are in some ways, reflecting some of the attributes of God and also the function to rule together, to bring order together, to to steward the creation that God has made. So we see our equality right there. Then uh, in the gospel, we see it there. We've already looked uh, in a previous occasion at Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 where Paul writes, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Greek, uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what would Paul have us do? I believe that Paul would have us celebrate that we are uh, everyone who belongs to Christ, we are all uh, sons of God. That means that we all belong to Christ. We are all Abraham's seed and we are all heirs according to the promise. That's true for Jews and Greeks. That's true for slaves and free. And look, it's true for men and women. All heirs, all stand to inherit. All uh, have the same position before Almighty God. All have the same way into relationship with God and enjoy the same relationship with God and experience uh, his forgiveness and salvation. And then you note then that the mark of being in this community of God's people is baptism, something that men and women do. And you could think back to the Old Testament and the Old Covenant and think, actually, in those days, it was circumcision, it was just for guys. But look, in the New Covenant, something's made even more apparent. It's baptism, folks. It's men and women. It's uh, everyone. And then that's reflected at the beginning, not just of creation and the gospel, but the beginning of the life of the church. Happened when God sends the God sends the Holy Spirit, and trying to help explain what's going on, Peter stands up and says, "Well, this fulfills what Joel said. Didn't Joel say, 'I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy.' So it's evidence of the Spirit of God amongst people that the gifts of the Spirit are spread throughout." Uh, the community, and Paul can later write in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7, now to each one a manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And Peter can write in 1 Peter 4, verse 10, each one should use whatever gift God has given him. So we see it there in creation, in the gospel, in the church, in gifts of the Spirit. We see it in marriage as well. Uh, Let's just turn to... Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, and Peter addresses wives and then husbands. When he say, speaks to husbands, he says in 1 Peter 3 verse 7, Husbands, 
In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. At that point, we're like shocked into thinking, how can we read this verse? Read on. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Now we've looked at that verse again, but let's just focus again. We're to celebrate the fact of our equality. So don't stumble over the phrase, the weaker partner, Look as well at heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Husbands and wives enjoying their relationship together because they recognize we are heirs together of the gracious gift of life. There's no different classes or tiers. We're all one in Christ. And then we see this reflected here as well in the church when Paul is writing in 1 Timothy 2. He's saying, look, the big picture, the big goal, the big activity is, come on, guys, guys, so to speak, everybody, <laughs> let's pray. I urge you to pray. Let's pray for everyone. And look, we've all got a part to play. So this is about men and women. Men, I just need to take you aside for one moment and tell you to lift up Holy hands in prayer without anger and disputing. Women, I just need to talk to you about dress. But this is all in the context of men and women together in the church playing a key and vibrant role in praying and seeing the kingdom of God spread across the planet. It's everyone. So that's our starting point. Celebrating our equality, equal dignity, equal value, of equal importance, and equally loved by God. And if you have some brothers and sisters, you may be familiar with the sort of situation where you or one of your siblings craftily wants to sidle up to mum and dad and say, we know that you love us all, but which one of us is your favourite. And if we're feeling confident, we're ready. Oh, all of us, rubbish. No, because every good parent will know the question doesn't make sense. That mum and dad are just going to say, just, this is wonderful, are going to say, you're all my favourite. You're all our favourite. The question doesn't make sense. And the same applies right here. We have a wonderful almighty God who says, look, You're in my image, and you're in my image, and together you're in my image. I'm just delighted with what I've made. I stood back and saw it's very good. Now God's creation has been affected by the fall, and so we see the evidence of sin. But something is very, very good. And so God says so, and says, you're all my favorite. So that's what we affirm, that's what we believe. We are equal, and yet we live in a society that isn't convinced or isn't always convinced, or isn't properly convinced, and therefore can drift off to an unhelpful extreme, and there are powerful spiritual forces that want to further ruin God's creation and will encourage us in one direction or another. One direction we may be uh, kind of tempted towards, what some people might say, is rubbish. There's no equality. And for those for whom, who might say there is no Equality, they might have like a motto. Might is right. That can be rebranded wrong and strong. But the idea is that, that no, there's, 
There isn't equality. Fundamentally, there is no equality. Might is right. And that leads society into a position where male dominance, male chauvinism, male abuses of power shape society. And if that happens to any great degree, uh, women are seen as objects and possessions. If you're married, then you have your trophy wife, and she is there, and her only purpose is to serve you and to make you look good. Um, This is a distortion of the truth. Stay tuned. Um, In terms of education, if society goes in that direction, there's no need to educate girls. We'll just focus on the guys. And if society goes in that direction, there's no need for women to vote because it's just the man who's right and and, and his might is right, so he gets to choose. Uh, So just enjoy creation. Anyway, moving on. Um, if, If it goes in that direction and if might is right, then there's like a... A tendency to violence. Punishment is too harsh. Be that in the family, father is harsh, there's not enough affection. In society, someone steals a loaf of bread, cut off their hand. It's like, what? That doesn't fit, that doesn't work. But if society tends in that direction, that's the way it goes. Weakness is squashed rather than people being nurtured. Uh, and in that context, maybe not in such an extreme way, but even uh, in a little way, if, if as a society we lean in that direction, what you see is men struggling to work within a team with women or to be led by women. And it's like the guy just can't handle it. She has this great idea, but I've got to ignore her and claim that it was my idea because men are strong, so she can't be. Uh, and, and that's the way that society uh, can, uh, can drift because leadership and authority is mainly thought of as having power to dictate, power to tell somebody what to do, and therefore being in an untouchable uh, position. And it's strength and might and position that means I get to decide what is right and appropriate, says the male who tends over in that direction. So Wayne Grudem has said, look, Manhood and womanhood, it can drift to unhelpful extremes. And for men, that can mean becoming a tyrant. And a tyrant, whether that's in the workplace or the church or in marriage or family life, tends towards it's my way or the highway. I don't really care what you have to tell me or say. Regardless of the merits of our different opinions, I win because I'm stronger. Ha-ha. That's the tyrant. Um, if you want to reflect on that for a moment, I'd say consider, well, consider a few things. Consider what Jesus says to the apostles. You've seen that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Do what I say. That's not to be the case with you, he says. He needs to take his disciples aside many times and say, look, I, know, I can see that in so many ways society is tended in this direction. And you'll just copy the pattern of leadership you've seen in the world unless you heed what I'm saying. And then there we see that leadership isn't primarily power for the hour. Actually, it's humble service. It is leading, but it's as a servant. Now, who modeled that? Jesus. And then that follows through. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, you can look at that later, speaks to elders. And he says, don't lord it over the flock. Don't be greedy for gain. Be willing to serve. 
And uh, we could see that elsewhere where, where Paul then speaks to husbands in Colossians 3, verse 19, in the context of marriage. So, yeah, that's the kind of leadership you'll see in the world sometimes. It's not to be the case here. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Those things need to be said because of an ungodly distortion that comes in uh, and that pushes people to that extreme. And if men become tyrants with a wrong view of authority, sometimes some women with a wrong view of what it means to submit to authority, can become doormats. In other words, I suppose the godly thing is, well, he's the leader. Um, My responsibility is to say yes, dear, to everything, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm not sure I can really share my opinion or uh, my wisdom or my insights. It's just a case of put up, shut up. I will have to because he says, because he's the man. Uh, Well, that's a distortion of submission. You're going to struggle with lots of verses in the New Testament if that's the lens with which we see the the word submit. Submit doesn't, uh, in biblical terms, shouldn't conjure up the image of like mixed martial arts, cage fighting, where the person at some point submits because they've been got in this horrendous grip. I think, no, 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 that's not what the Bible would point us towards so the onus of responsibility is on the is on us men not to be a tyrant but there is still a responsibility on women to say actually don't just bury your wisdom don't bury your insights don't forget your questions it, don't, don't give in to that feeling of it, what I have to say doesn't really matter there's loads of places in the scripture that we could turn to as well We could go to Proverbs 31 and say, look at the wife of noble character. She's not timid. She's industrious. She's taking initiative. She doesn't have to worry, what will my husband think, when she buys a field. She's buying, she's trading. There are so many ways in which she's a, well, she is the personification of wisdom. And she's fantastic. She's not fearful. And if you want a great model for godliness in a marriage context, I think one of the most profound examples is Mary and Joseph. And I'm not just saying that because it's December. Just think for a moment. Think about how Joseph responds to Mary. Think about how Joseph responds to the news he gets. Uh, God's king is going to be born. He's in me, says Mary. I've con- he's in me. I've conceived him by the Holy Spirit. You can kind of guess what his initial response may have been. And then consider what was Herod's initial response when he heard the news a new king is going to be born. Maybe the initial reactions weren't tremendously different, but what Herod does is he goes to the... Would you believe... Read it. He goes to the Bible and finds from the Bible justification to be violent. I think, Herod, you've missed the big picture here. If the Bible says that God's king is going to be born in Bethlehem, that would be reason to go with the wise men yourself and bow down and worship. But he's not having any of it. So what does he do? He resorts to horrific violence. There we have a model of a tyrant. But if you consider Joseph, yeah, his initial reaction might have been a bit, what? But that quickly gives way to grace. 
and understanding. He considers perhaps how he can divorce Mary quietly, even then trying to protect her reputation. But following that receives the dream from an angel saying what's in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit and he learns to recognize. It must have been tremendously inconvenient to say the least to begin with. But he realizes, no, there's something in her and I'm going to support this. And look at the context of safety that he provides Mary with. That's really godly leadership. That's worth digging into a little bit more. But we'll move on. We're to celebrate that we are equal and that's our standing point. And then we're going to do this. We're going to recognize that we are different. And to make it our aim to honor not just caricatured ways of understanding difference between men and women in culture, but turn to the Bible to honor what the Bible says. And again, we see this running all the way through. We see it in creation. We see it with Adam and Eve. Consider there, and I won't turn again just right now, but that in chapter 2 we're told that God created Adam first. He gets some dust, molds it into shape, breathes life into it, and it becomes him, Adam. And then Adam has a few jobs to do. Uh, and perhaps by stages he's, he's allowed to recognize, I can't do this. I can't do this by myself. And God says, no, that's right. You need a, a helper that's suitable for you. And he creates uh, a woman. How does God do that? Isn't it interesting? And I know we've mentioned this before. He take, he put, Adam falls asleep and he takes a rib from Adam's body and fashions that rib into a woman. And actually it's Adam who names her woman and then later on names her Eve. It's a bit different, isn't it? God could have put Adam to sleep and just got some more dust. Got that up from the ground, molded that, and breathed life into that dust. But he doesn't. He takes something from Adam. And can you see then that we can, we can still say and celebrate, look, Adam and Eve are made from exactly the same stuff. The earth, with the breath of God brought into it. But we can also say it's a bit different. Eve was created after Adam and she was taken from him. There are some differences uh, to recognize. And then we see that in the context of marriage uh, in the New Testament where different apostles, different writers speak to husbands and wives. We looked at uh, 1 Peter just a moment ago. We could turn to Ephesians chapter 5 and see there about the instructions, the directions uh, of this is how the gospel works out in married life. Uh, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, and it says a little bit. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we can see then that in the scripture, but I think it also has echoes in just how we are, how we are made to be. Um, that won't be demonstrated in precisely the same ways, but I think there is something in a guy who is godly that just believes I, I want to lead and there's something in me that I, I want to protect and I want to provide. 
And I think correspondingly, there's something in, in women too. Now, we had a wedding recently uh, here at City Church and caused me just to go back through my notes to realize that I think Rachel and I have prepared somewhere between 20 and 30 couples for marriage. And we realized one year we'd spent 48 evenings in the year doing it with a variety of different, uh, different couples. And we spent some time looking at the responsibilities of husbands and wives. And it's always exciting and sobering and also slightly nerve-wracking even to go there. Um, but normally what happens when we say to guys, look, there's a sense in which you have a responsibility God-given for this marriage. You have a responsibility to lead, a responsibility to provide, a responsibility to protect. And the guys go, yeah, I kind of feel quite daunted by that, but I think that's what's in me. And we would turn to Titus chapter 2, and another kind of like, ooh, wonder what sort of reaction this will get. We'll just look at Titus 2 and uh, verse 4. He's saying, Paul is writing to Timothy, no, he's writing to Titus, telling Titus to instruct older women to instruct younger women, if you get the train of thought. Um, verse 4, then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. And we spend a little bit of time without kind of saying, here's a precise job description. So actually, there's this biblical encouragement to put effort into creating a home. It's not that the guy isn't doing that at all. He might be doing it in a variety of ways. And we just reflect. And quite often, the soon-to-be wife will say, yeah, I'm sometimes a bit daunted, but I do kind of feel that's in me. I want to do that. We, we, we kind of find these echoes of God's creation in, in dispositions and senses that are, that are already there. And I don't think we have to squash those and play them down. And we're to see that in the church as well. Um, so it's important to honor difference, not overstate it, not create a caricature or a precise job description of what every man and every woman should be doing, but to honor differences. That we're not exactly the same. And there are these different responsibilities. And unfortunately, again, there are different voices in our society which would want to drag us to an extreme. We looked at the, there's no equality, might is right, distortion. But we perhaps also need to visit this other distortion, a distortion that wants to affirm we're equal, but wants to do that by saying we are the same. There are no differences. We're saying we're equal and we're different. Some would say we're not equal, but we're different. And some would say we're equal and we're the same. And this gets a bit tricky and a bit messy and leads us away from the Bible. And real God-given differences can end up being squashed. And in everything, the aim is 50-50. Everything has to be 50-50. So if you're going through uh, school, college, university, there's this, some, like un, well, maybe it is written down, unwritten rule that if more guys want to be engineers and more girls want to be nurses... That in itself is a problem that must be corrected. 
We must aim for the society where 50% of engineers are men and 50% of engineers are women. And we must get to this point where 50% of nurses are men and 50% of nurses are women. Now, it's okay for anybody to be either. But we, in our society, there are powerful spiritual forces saying, no, it must be 50-50. And if that kind of seeps into the way in which we think, everything kind of comes through that lens. Right, who earns the money? We're aiming for 50-50. We've both got to be involved in the workplace. Who's going to do childcare? Well, that's just got to be 50-50. That's what we're going for. Um, I think I, it's not necessary. It may not even be helpful. Um, and also, we can see these profound, profound differences. What happens is if we, we have to squash significant things if we say there are no differences. Now, this passage has a really intriguing verse. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. What are we to make of that? It's easier to say what it doesn't mean and what it can't mean because of all of Scripture. So it cannot mean that only women who have given birth have the chance of salvation. It, it can't mean that for all the reasons that we've already looked at. But perhaps, as we edge towards it, we can see, look, he's just been talking about Adam and Eve and how Eve got deceived and became a sinner. In the very next verse, we're told, look, look at the significance of childbearing. She, or they both, were given a profound promise after the fall, after the curse. You have, Adam and Eve, made a profound mess of things, and creation will suffer the consequences until the day of judgment. However, there is hope, because from you, Eve, will come a child who will crush the serpent's head, and there is hope for things to be restored. Now, maybe it's a slightly strange way of putting it, but I think there's a hint here of the significance of Eve giving birth. And I think perhaps when Cain came along, she's like, yay, I've got him! Actually, as you'll find out, it's not all about Cain. It's a bit bigger. Creation is going to exist for a lot longer. Uh, we find out generations, thousands of years, and Jesus comes, the light of the world. The child was born. But I think if we go down this path, there are no differences. We are the same. What happens is society squashes the significance of bearing children. So now just make everything 50-50. And what we'll find is it's the state, it's the government that has to raise them because it's neither kind of a husband and wife trying to do things 50-50 actually give 75% of it away because they need to go and both be in the workplace, both pursue everything in, in a way that seems equal, but could just be massively damaging and unhelpful. Now, if all of that sounds a bit strange or a bit uh, odd, are you saying that men are more responsible? Yeah, in a way, I think that's the case. Res there is responsibility amongst all of us. But look, Adam was held to account first after Eve sinned. And if you went into a room and you found three children squabbling and they are all shouting and they are all throwing their fists, they're all causing damage and they're all causing mayhem, 
What are you going to do? Does it make any difference if one of those children was 12 and one of those children was 9 and one of those children was 7? Who are you going to speak to first? Who are you going to call to account first? Well, you're going to speak to the 12-year-old, aren't you? What's happened? Why has this happened? The 12-year-old is going to experience some consequences. Now, actually, the other two still have responsibility. What ages did I use? Nine, the nine-year-old, is still responsible for his or her actions and will still experience consequences and discipline. And the six-year-old is still responsible for what he or she did and said and will experience consequences. But every, it might not all be entirely the same. Now, all the oldest siblings in the room just say, it's just not fair. We never get away with anything. It's always my fault when the youngest one played up. Well, I don't know. See, I'm the youngest of, a, <laughs> youngest of four. <laughs> it was never my fault. No, that's not the case. <laughs> Let me tell you how hard it was being the youngest. No, <laughs> responsibility is shared. It is fair. It's just not precisely the same. And the same is true in the context of marriage and in the context of church life. He's a bit more responsible. And that somehow is in him. He has that sense of, I should lead, I should protect, I should provide. If there's no difference, and another Titanic goes down without enough lifeboats, there should be a discussion by the lifeboat between a man and a woman saying, well, I think I should go in. I think I should go in. You should stay here. And let's say the woman says, okay, I'll stay here. And the man goes, great, well, I guess we tossed a coin for it. It's fair. See you later. And he gets onto the boat and leaves her to sink. Is that not an absolute disgrace? Isn't there a difference? It would be outrageous, wouldn't it? Let me throw another thing into the mix. I think loads loads of cultures throughout history would speak to ours and say, what? You had women on the front line fighting wars. Just what's that about? Not through things to do with competence or, or in that sense even physical strength. It's just, I think loads of people would just go, that's really messed up. Should you not be protecting them and not requiring them to go to the But we're all the same and we should have exactly the same. Come on. Is that really how society should be? No differences? If society goes down that line, there are no differences. Rather than having uh, tyrants and doormats, what we will have uh, men being or becoming wimps, uh, passive. And we've looked at that a little bit before, so I won't labour the point too much. But this is where responsibility, a right sense of kind responsibility to lead is abdicated and the wimp chooses always the path of least resistance and now it's his turn to say yes dear no dear three bags full dear whatever you say dear well that's not godly manhood just as much as it wasn't godly womanhood if that that's what uh, a woman was doing just passive and sometimes a man out loud or in himself might complain she doesn't let me lead She doesn't let her, so how can I? How can I take the initiative? She doesn't respond to me like that. Well, 
You can't wait for like the perfect sinless conditions to emerge before you pick up your God-given responsibility. So in a sense, the onus, guys, is still on us. Whether we're tyrants or whether we, if we, if we err that way or if we err in the other direction. And sometimes, if we're quite honest, we can kind of flip wildly between the two. We might think, well, I, I kind of tend to this direction. But actually, sometimes I make massive mistakes over there as well. <laughs> we can't just wait for glory until we then step into leadership. No, we, we step in. Um, kindly, lovingly, patiently, wisely, gently, but still definitely. And if men will tw- tend towards being wimps... Uh, women will tend to be uh, usurping, believing that it's probably best if I take charge. It's probably best because I don't think he understands this either. So I'm not going to ask him what he thinks is best because I don't want to follow the consequences. I think it's best if I act independently. I think it's best if I decide what we are going to do. Let's say in the context of marriage, but perhaps that applies elsewhere too. And you notice that in this passage in 1 Timothy 2, it says that Eve was deceived. She's kind of tricked into this no-difference way of thinking. God has established a created order, and without sin, it works beautifully and works effortlessly. But she believes a lie. I don't think I quite trust God and his design in the first place. I don't think I quite trust him. So... I've decided to take the fruit that was forbidden. I've decided to eat it. And I've even managed to persuade my husband that it was the best idea and that he should take a bite as well. So don't get mistaken. We are in Adam or in Christ. We're not in Eve. In that sense, the sin is still uh, on Adam, but she was deceived. It felt more comfortable somehow to choose this line of, of independence Kind of reject any differences. Reject that perhaps there's a sense in which he carries more responsibility to lead and to lead well. I just want to try and twist things around just to make sure I always get what I want. It's not going to help you. It's not going to work work well. And I even note, note from Ephesians chapter 5 that it says of a, of, uh, to the men, you're to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sometimes we don't read that far on, and we don't quote that bit further on. It says, you're to love your wives as you love your own body. And so sometimes, if we're just living life in this very independent way, and as a wife you're getting overstretched, too busy, physically run down, and you're not listening to your husband, your husband's thinking, no, but there's something in me that says, I, I, need, to, I need to love you and protect you, as I do my own body, so please listen. Please, let's work through this together because I don't want you to become a wreck because you've taken on so much. Yeah, but it's like in this no-difference world, we have to be boys and girls at the same time. We've got to do everything. I've got to make home. I've got to do a job. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. And it pulls us into independence rather than uh, interdependence. Together. So we are equal. We are different. Let's celebrate that we're equal. Let's honor the fact that we are different without overstating it into caricatures and so on. 
But what about to conclude? Thirdly, we are to enjoy the fact that we are one. We are united. I think we see this in creation. I think we see this in marriage that a husband and wife are celebrating. We're equal, we're different, we're one. That in the church, all of us together are celebrating. We are equal, we are different, we are one. You might think, and I think you'd be justified if you do, that's a really tight position to hold. That's quite narrow. It seems easy to really over-honor differences and underplay equality, or to really celebrate equality and kind of squash differences. You can see how we could go one way or another quite easily. How do we go slap-bang down the middle? How do we honor all of these things? How do we walk this narrow path in a society which is fast running to both extremes at the same time and like kind of bipolar, just switching between them all the time. How do we go right down the middle? I think we need to do this. Recognize what it means to be in the image of God, which is what we started with. And the more that we look at the marvel at the mystery and the wonder of who God is and what God is like, then I think by his grace he will strengthen us and enable us to walk down this path in the radical middle. Why do I say that? Because as the scripture unfolds, we see clearly that the God who says, let us make man in our image, is the God who is three in one. And from eternity past, right now, and eternity into the future, we understand there's one God who is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And throughout time and beyond it, what have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit been doing? And what will they continue to do? I think the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be celebrating. We are equal. We're together. And I think the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will be honoring. We are different. We do different things. We interact with each other in a way that honors those differences. The Father initiates, the Son implements, the Holy Spirit brings fellowship. They're celebrating, they're honoring, and they're enjoying their unity. There's even headship and authority within their relationship. The Son just wants to do what the Father is doing. It says of the Son in Philippians that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of whilst he served on the earth in the flesh. And we see that the Holy Spirit just loves to bring attention to Jesus. Look at how wonderful he is. Let me remind you of what he taught. Let me put his spirit right in you. And the son goes, I'm just delighting to do the Father's will. Look at the Father. If you experience the grace that's in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll come to know the love that's in the Father. Come follow me. I'll reveal to, to you what he's like. And the Father goes, 
I just love working with the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's, there's no oppression. There's no unholy dominance. There's no abuse of power. There's no usurping authority. There's no passivity. No one cares about me anyway. Can you see that we're on the edge of something mysterious when God said, let us make man in our image, male and female? Even just considering men and women, we're on the edge of mystery and wonder. How much more then are we on the edge of mystery and wonder when we consider what God is like? Is it then surprising that a God who is like this and has always been like this will have it represented in his created order? Is it then surprising that the Bible would offend lots of cultures at the same time? You guys who think there's no equality, listen to Jesus. Follow the apostles. Read Proverbs. And to those who'd say there are no differences, say exactly the same. That's what we're called to do. And as we see that as beautiful, and as we see God as beautiful, we will start to live out that beauty in our relationships with each other. Amen?